Hello, everyone, and welcome. I am Dr. Yara Asi. I'm a non-resident fellow here at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm also an assistant professor at the University of Central Florida in the School of Global Health Management and Informatics, and I'm also a co-director for the Palestine Program for Health and Human Rights. Uh, welcome to today's webinar, Forcible Transfer is a War Crime, West Bank Pogroms Are Working. Today is Tuesday, September 12th, 2023. And to begin our, our webinar today, uh, forcible transfer of Palestinians in the West Bank is a reality. The Israeli government, its security forces, and Israeli settlers are actively targeting Palestinian communities through a growing matrix of tools geared towards making their lives so economically untenable, functionally unbearable, and importantly, fundamentally unsafe that they are compelled to abandon their homes and lands disperse their communities and give up their means of earning their livelihoods. Israel's long used methods include forbidding Palestinians from legally building homes and other structures, preventing access to infrastructure, including electricity, water, and roads, and ongoing demolitions in 60% of the West Bank. Targeted violence carried out by settlers, which we've seen increasingly in the past few years, is tolerated if not actively supported by Israeli security forces. This includes harassment, threats, destruction of property, and outright terrorism in the form of armed lethal attacks. These have been used to suppress and threaten Palestinian life in the West Bank. And these methods have been accelerating in frequency and brazenness under this new Israeli government. Together, these factors have already led to the displacement of multiple Palestinian shepherding communities in the West Bank. Today, more communities are in danger as Israel seeks to remove Palestinians in key areas across the West Bank in order to take over their land. In this briefing, we will learn more about these communities, as well as discuss the official and unofficial tools that Israel is using to displace them, and importantly, how this oppression amounts to the war crime of forcible transfer. So I'm really delighted to be here to have this conversation today with Karim Jubran and Sarit Mkheli. Karim is Beit Salem's field research director. He joined Beit Salem in a, as a field researcher in 2004 and became director of the department in 2009. Prior to joining the organization, Jubran followed a career in education as a lecturer in sociology in an academic college in Ramallah. He holds a BA and an MA in sociology from Sofia University in Bulgaria. Jubran also serves as a board member of the Palestinian Counseling Center, an NGO devoted to developing and improving mental health concepts and services in Palestine. And he is also on the board of directors of the Palestinian Human Rights NGO in San. Sarit Mkheli is International Advocacy Officer at Beit Salem. She joined Beit Salem in 2004 as its media spokesperson and director of public outreach. In addition, Sarit documents demonstrations in the West Bank with a focus on Israeli security forces misuse of crowd control weapons and is active in Israel's anti-occupation movement, specifically as part of One Climate, an activist group campaigning for climate justice between the river and the sea. Sarit has an MA in Gender Studies from Birkbeck College, University of London, and a BA in Graphic Design from Camberwell College of Art, the London Institute. Welcome, Karim and Sarit. Thank you for joining us today. 
Thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, so I want to jump right into the questions because uh, with a topic like this, the time I know will absolutely fly by. Um, and so just to broadly start, our topic is the displacement and dispossession of Palestinian communities in the West Bank. Beit Salem is about to release a paper on this topic next week entitled, The Pogroms Are Working, The Transfer Is Already Happening. And we'll put a link to the paper in the chat now. So let's first start by describing these communities. Who are these people? Who is being displaced? Um, what parts of the West Bank do they live in? And what are their lives and communities like? Uh, Karim, I'd like to turn to you for this one. Uh, these communities, uh, they are distributed in different areas of the West Bank. Uh, but when we talk about uh, the actual displacement, which has happened for uh, several communities, a few communities, uh, mainly uh, it's in uh, uh, east of uh, Ramallah. Uh, we have uh, there four communities, which they are being displaced until this moment. We have in the south of Hebron Hills, about three communities, which they are also the force displaced from their uh, places. And uh, we have such as uh, communities in the, along the Jordan Valley area and uh, next to Jerusalem in Khal Ahmar area. We have also in the South Hebron Hills, uh, many communities uh, living in this uh, way and they are distributed along the West Bank uh, in area C mainly. Uh, these uh, communities, they are mainly shepherding uh, uh, communities. Uh, some of them, they have uh, some kind of agriculture also in these uh, communities, but uh, mainly uh, shepherding. Uh, in the last few years, uh, the uh, project of the, uh, the settlement enterprise start to bring out a new uh, way of uh, controlling the land, which is the uh, farm uh, outposts which they located them next to the uh, Palestinian communities, these communities. Uh, if we look to the life of these communities, they are mainly uh, lived by herding uh, 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 livestock. So they need uh, a big land in order to move in in different uh, uh, seasons in the, in the year. Uh, and uh, they are, uh, it's very important to know that these communities, they are uh, not connected to any services, not to the city, not to the water, even they don't have roads leading to uh, them. Uh, all these communities, uh, the, the, those which they displaced and other communities also, uh, they have uh, almost uh, demolition orders for all their structures in uh, these communities, even the bathrooms, which they are being donated by uh, different uh, NGOs and uh, uh, different uh, humanitarian organizations, uh, even though they had uh, demolition orders. So that's mainly these uh, communities. And uh, we will talk about them specifically uh, further. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, that's the general about these uh, com communities. And when we talk about the communities, it's not only those which they displaced, there's another uh, communities which they are facing the same uh, uh, pressure uh, from the state, but we will talk more about the solar balance, I think, in the other uh, part of the, uh, the webinar. 
Great, thank you. And just for those uh, listening who, who may be unfamiliar, Area C is the area of the West Bank that under the Oslo Accords was assumed full civil and security control by Israel. Um, and this is where much of the, uh, you know, most of the agricultural lands and, and parts of the West Bank are. So this is particularly um, important part of the West Bank that is under full Israeli control where these communities are living. Um, Sarit, I'd like to turn to you. Um, can you explain to our audience the circumstances under which these communities have have tried to survive um, through through these decades of, of these uh, you know these issues? First, what Beit Salem describes as the official track that leads to displacement. So, what are the policies and practices of the state of Israel towards these communities? Yeah, so thank you very much for this, because I think it's very important to, to um, clarify that what we're seeing on the ground right now is absolutely shocking and unprecedented, but it has a background in long-term Israeli governmental policies that have been implemented to try and force Palestinians away from these like more like rural or frontier areas uh, mm -hmm. throughout the West Bank. These are areas that are more sparsely populated, like Karim described, with small Palestinian herding communities that are actually um, quite poor. Many of them don't have a lot of uh, political uh, power, certainly don't have a lot of uh, protection. Um, and the Israeli authorities have been implementing a whole range of um, of tools that has been referred to as the coercive environment by the international community, because it's basically about trying to make these lives, the lives of these people unbearable to try and get them to essentially leave uh, of their ostensibly of their own accord, right? So make them just give up and go. So these uh, home, their, their homes are demolished. They do not receive any planning permission. They're not allowed to connect to the um, um, water uh, and electricity grids. Um, there's also a whole range of different excuses, quote unquote, right? So various different uh, Israeli uh, uh, justifications to prevent, to de-develop these communities. Anything and, and everything, you name it. So either just, you know, kind of like you don't get a planning, uh, you don't get planning permission because you're uh, living in area C, that area isn't that as you described these are controls or it's a firing zone or it could be an archaeological site or it could be a nature reserve there's always a good excuse to prevent the development of these palestinian communities at the expense obviously uh, or or as uh, in order to uh, facilitate um, the development of settlements at their expense right so that's the exact uh, policy and this policy has been implemented for many years. But what we're seeing now is something new. For many years, we've seen very uh, uh, serious uh, violent attacks by Israeli settlers. There's nothing new about settler violence. And there's also nothing new about the uh, strategic nature of settler violence. But in recent years, we've really seen a game changer, like um, with what Karim described, with the specific development of the uh, herding farms that have, we've actually also discussed with uh, with FMEP and, and with uh, with other uh, US audiences. I think it's a very important key development. And um, this is essentially a major informal tool of the Israeli government. This violence uh, used, applied by these 
herding farms is a major tool to force Palestinians away from these communities. Essentially, like 20 years of the coercive environment haven't done what two years of this direct brutal violence has done to these communities. And we'll talk about them right now. Yeah, and and I think you it's important to you know reiterate that there are both formal, uh, as you state, you know, lack of approvals for permits and things like this, and then there's these informal methods in in this kind of tacit approval of this settler violence that I know we're about to touch on. Um, you know, you can't really if if you're uh, plugged into this topic, open social media without seeing videos of settlers attacking um, herders, attacking even children, um, attacking Palestinians, uh, uprooting olive trees, attacking the, the livestock directly. You know, this has this, as you say, really seems to be accelerating. So can we move then to this topic? You know, what is the role of the Israeli settlers in the displacement of these communities? Because this is not just displacement for displacement's sake. This is displacement with a goal of replacement with, with you know, these Israeli settler communities. So can you talk to us a little bit about the role of Israeli settlers in the displacement of these agricultural farms and herding farms, for example? Uh, Kadeem, you're muted again. Uh, 2021, we published a, a report uh, which uh, under the name of uh, state business. We deal with these uh, uh, outposts and uh, farms, which is uh, distributed in the West Bank. It was 150 uh, uh, farms and outposts. But in the last two years, uh, more uh, tens of uh, new uh, uh, shepherding and uh, uh, herding farms being established in the different areas in the West Bank and mainly mixed to uh, Palestinian shepherds uh, uh, communities. Mm. Uh, the main goal of these uh, uh, farms is to prevent Palestinians from moving out of their circle and out of their uh, buildings uh, area, which is tents, not uh, buildings, but out of these uh, places. That's one of the uh, uh, practice, new practice, which they uh, start uh, to use against the shepherds uh, communities in the uh, West Bank. Uh, and not only uh, that, they start to uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to to deal with these communities with a lot of violence by attacking attacking the uh, communities themselves, by attacking the shepherds, Palestinian shepherds, when they try to go out raising with with their uh, livestock, uh, and we document many many attacks in uh, such a way in these uh, areas. Uh, also, we can see that in the last uh, year or two years, uh, the, uh, the uh, quality of the uh, attacks, it became different. The, uh, the, the nature of these attacks, they became different. In the past, we used to, to document many violence from the settlers against the Palestinians, but it mainly it used to be, uh, for example, the uh, uh, price tag, uh, Mm -hmm. by coming to the communities, by burning one uh, structure or something like that, by cutting uh, wheels of a structure, uh, uh, writing graffiti um, uh, just for Arabs and something like that. Mm -hmm. But in the last year, we start to note that these attacks became more organized, uh, more people 
participating in these attacks and uh, not only against the uh, shepherding uh, communities, also against villages and uh, in the West Bank, like what happened, for example, in Hawara, the pogroms in Hawara, in um, Safa, in Turbusaya. Uh, and uh, that's, I think that uh, it's one of the new ways of controlling more and more land by preventing people from reaching not only the shepherding uh, communities from reaching the land in, uh, uh, over to Uraes, but also uh, the farmers uh, being attacked many times. And we have a lot of documentations of attacking the farmers uh, during their work in their uh, uh, farms. And all these attacks, they have only one goal, to have more control over land. And in uh, our uh, uh, report at uh, 2021, the state business, we take, uh, took a few uh, examples. One of these examples, it was a farm in uh, the uh, north of the Jordan Valley uh, called Imzoka. Uh, this farm uh, uh, controlled more than 15,000 donums. And all these areas became closed for the uh, Palestinian shepherds. They cannot reach these areas. So that's mainly what's going on in the ground with these communities. And uh, by this violence, some of this, these communities they had to move from their places in uh, mainly in uh, 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 East Ramallah area, uh, starting with uh, uh, Rasitin in uh, Samia, uh, Bakaa, Kabun. The, these four uh, communities being displaced in the last uh, year, uh, following by the uh, violence of the settlers, by attack, attacks of the settlers, by preventing them from uh, 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 using the land for raising their uh, livestock and uh, uh, close them in a very small area. And this small area also been attacked from time to time by the settlers. And the people, they start to, to fret for their lives, for their kids. And also from economical point of view, it's not a benefit for them to stay there. So they've been pushed to other areas next to the area A, B or A, which there, uh, there is no uh, shepherding zones. There are, they have to be stuck in uh, closed areas and that uh, damage them economically completely and social also. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, th this is important to note that historically Palestinians have been a very agrarian and, and shepherding based society. And so this targeting of, uh, you know, farms and, and, and herders is especially a way of attacking, you know, dispossessing Palestinians from their identity in many ways as well. Um, you mentioned this um, pogrom against in Hawada that happened in the spring. And what made this one unique is that it got actually a little bit of international news. You know, we heard about it across the world. Of course, you know, that was particularly seemed violent. But the Hawada is, of course, not, as you mentioned, the only setting for these kinds of attacks. Can you tell us a little bit more about the nature of this settler violence and, and even the, the nature of calling these pogroms um, and, and what they mean for the, the Palestinian communities that are affected? Um, I mean, I, I think when, when you're looking at what's been happening in recent months, uh, and the last couple of years is 
that things that used to be done in small groups at night in a, in a kind of like clandestine way, like Karim described, you know, graffiti, puncturing cars, is now done in broad daylight with large groups of people, sometimes hundreds, numbering the hundreds. And that is a massive change and certainly uh, uh, demonstrating an emboldened and a kind of like a, an understanding by the settlers that no one is going to stop them. And that's because that's exactly the reality. Uh, in many of these attacks, we see soldiers arriving either together with the settlers, kind of like serving as a protection detail in a way, or minutes after the settlers begin to attack and the soldiers uh, busy themselves primarily with putting down any Palestinians who try to defend themselves, right, by shooting them in some cases, arresting them, shooting tear gas, etc. So that's um, the shocking scenes we saw in Hawara and in Tunusaya and in Umsafa are the result not just of this emboldened uh, uh, approach uh, of the settlers, the fact that there are simply more of them, that they're more organized, uh, but the fact that they know nothing is going to happen to them. There's going to be no accountability um, and they're not, they're not going to pay any price. So essentially Israel incentivizes settler violence through providing all of this land and doesn't disincentivize it because there's never any punishment. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, a few years ago, the Palestinian family whose home was uh, uh, attacked by settlers and a young boy's family the, died. And, the and, and, the yes, family. and these days, I, I, from what I understand, the, the attacker, he's actually being lauded in some circles um, across right. Israel. So not only are they not being disincentivized, there's actually social incentives for, for this type of behavior. Um, you mentioned the state here, um, the role of the state in this violence and how the military, far from you know, preventing these, is, is, is really an active part of this. Can you tell us more about the role of the Israeli state in these uh, incidents? Yeah, so I, I talked about soldiers and how they participate uh, often in settler attacks. In Betelem's uh, video volunteers film countless uh, uh, you know, shots of video showing this, showing settlers rampaging through communities protected by the by Israeli soldiers. Uh, so we got we, we discussed this, but there's also other issues. There's the whole um, economic basis for the setting up of the herding outposts. I mean, it's not that cheap to build uh, a farm with sheep or cows to to plow fields to build roads. All of this costs money, and it's funded directly or indirectly by the government and by other uh, local authorities of the settlements in the West Bank, which is Israeli tax uh, uh, funding. Uh, much of this funding is obscured through it being hidden from view, but in some cases we, we managed to track down clear state support for these very, very violent, aggressive uh, outposts. Additionally, there's also the political uh, backing of these outposts. I mean, I think currently in, in Israel, um, you, you, you talked about the extreme case of uh, Amiram Ben Uliel, uh, who was uh, convicted of the killing of the Dawabshi family. But I want to talk about something much more mainstream, which is that pretty much most Israelis or many mainstream Israelis accept that this notion of the battle for Area C is a real thing. And in fact, Palestinians are trying to take over Area C, which is ours. So it's Israel's. Um, and many Israelis accept this. This is an absolutely untrue and false narrative promoted by the settlers, by the government. So I think it's very important to remember um, there, there's a, the whole range of um, 
factors behind this new emboldened uh, or newly emboldened uh, attitude uh, by violent settlers. Mm. Yeah, and uh, you know, earlier one of you had mentioned when this is happening, um, you know, what happens when Palestinians try to defend themselves. You know, usually in this discourse, when we talk about self-defense, it's almost entirely centered around Israel's self-defense. What about what happens to Palestinians who try to defend themselves from raids of their towns, raids of their homes, raids of their villages, um, or even not even trying to defend themselves, but just trying to access their own land. Can you tell us a little bit about what happens to Palestinians who get caught up in these types of situations? Uh, for me? Sure, yeah. Uh, usually, when, and we have many documentations, as Sarit mentioned before, that when settlers attack Palestinians and the Palestinians try to defend their houses and their homes, the, uh, the army, they came to the area, they start to shoot tear gas, uh, uh, rubber bullets, and even life ammunition against the Palestinians. And we have uh, just recently three uh, examples. Uh, one from Hawara, uh, uh, one guy being killed in the, uh, the day of the pogroms against Hawara, uh, Sabah al-Aqtash, uh, he tried with his family to defend his house from being burning from the settlers. Uh, he being shot and being killed. Until this moment, we didn't decide, or we, we, our administration doesn't reach a, a, a decision if uh, the shooting from the settlers or from the army, because mm -hmm. both of them they are uh, uh, armed and uh, both of them being shot to the Aktash uh, uh, family. Uh, in Um Safa, uh, last attack by the settlers. Also, the people of uh, the, uh, the village, they go out in order to defend themselves. One young guy being killed by the, uh, the Israeli army. In mm. uh, the last year, or before one year, in Limayir also, uh, settlers attacking the uh, Palestinian farmers. When the Palestinian farmers go out in order to, to protect themselves from the settlers, the army came and they shoot uh, another Palestinian a guy he being killed. In many cases, the Palestinians being uh, uh, also uh, arrested because they are defending themselves and they try to push the attacks of the settlers. And in uh, most of this, uh, these attacks, we can see the settlers joined by the soldiers doing that without uh, being arrested, without being stopped. And in many cases, in some cases, when the soldiers saw the cameras, they start very in very soft way to uh, push back the, uh, the settlers, but in the same uh, time, they shoot a lot of tear gas and uh, life animation and uh, uh, bullet rubber against the uh, Palestinians. Mm. So that's the situation in the ground all the time. And even in uh, some cases we document, at least in one case, that one uh, settler, he took the uh, weapon from the soldier in order to shoot to Palestinians and that that happened. Uh, in other cases, we document that the soldiers with the settlers, they, together they stand and they shoot to uh, the direction of the Palestinians. So that's the cooperation between the state and the army in the ground with the settlers. Uh, and uh, in this way, the Palestinians, they cannot even protect themselves. And in many cases, 
for example, these uh, committees which were, uh, they decide to, re to remove and to space from their places, they don't want their kids to be arrested. In Ain Samia, we document that uh, 2021, I think, that the settlers, they attack the uh, family there uh, when the, the uh, members of the family start to defend themselves. They blame them that they're attacking the settlers and they arrest them, they pay uh, uh, fines in order to be released from the jail after uh, more than one month. So that's what happened all the time. The Palestinians, they, they don't have a right to defend themselves. They are all the time, they are the victims, but they are in the eyes of the state, they are the criminals. And that's make the, their life more complicated. You cannot defend yourself, you cannot defend your family. And in many ways, you've been attacked and you, you have no right to react to this uh, attack, to react to this actions against you. In many cases, the Brazilians, they saw the settlers entering their land with their sheep and they start to, uh, to damage the, uh, the, their uh, agricultural products and they cannot do anything for them. They, when they call the police and they call the, the, uh, the army, they just arrive there and they don't do anything and uh, even they push the Palestinians out of the area. And that's the situation uh, mainly. Right. And, and then, then the message to Palestinians becomes quite clear, you know, that even uh, if you're in a situation where you are clearly defending your own property, um, there is no justice, no recourse for you. And it's important to remember as well that even if on the same piece of land, an Israeli settler and a Palestinian from the West Bank are arrested, they then face two two different tiers of, Legal of systems, yeah. well, exactly. So yeah. uh, the message is quite clear, you know, you are, you have no recourse, you have no way to defend yourself. And, and that I think is as part of this effort of transfer, um, just leave. That's the only way that you can manage the situation. Protect yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so can we talk a little bit about the logistics, you know, because I think when people hear about war crimes of forcible transfer, maybe we have this image in our head of these large, uh, you know, I, I don't even know, it sounds very formal. So can you tell us what the logistics of transfer are? How does forcible transfer work when these people leave? Where do they go? What happens to the homes and the lands that they leave behind or their their livestock, their uh, their farms? Um, what happens to the communities when the members of the communities are displaced and I assume are fragmented, further fragmented? And are they able to get jobs? How do they rebuild their lives if, if they can at all? And it's a very, very difficult situation. When we visit the, the four communities which have been displaced last year, you just uh, see uh, uh, empty places with uh, damage everywhere. Uh, they are, uh, and it used to be a place where people used to live in. Uh, it's just empty area. And uh, now the movement of the settlers is more free in this area. They are completely com controlled this, the, these areas. Uh, these families, they are mainly, they move to places next to the area uh, B and A. Hmm. which there is no uh, raising areas. Uh, many of these families, even before, they start to sell their uh, animals in order to feed the other uh, part of the animals. 
because uh, and it's very simply for, uh, and we met uh, many of these shepherds, which they talk about at least six months, they have to, uh, to be in the nature in order to feed their livestock. If they are not be able to be in the nature, they have to be uh, the, uh, the, uh, the food for the, their animals. Uh, then it costs a lot of money. Uh, from other side, they are not connected to the water also. So they have to, be, to bring water and to be water. And uh, it's very simple. Uh, one cubic meter cost for these uh, 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 communities more than 35 shekels. That means about $10. But mm. for me, for example, in my house, I get it for $2 only. Mm. And imagine when you have the two or 300 heads of uh, goats, uh, how much you, you have to spend. So most of these uh, families, they sell a lot of their animals before they leave. At the end, they had to leave uh, to uh, their houses to build a new life. Some of them, they rent houses in the village. Some of them, they rent a land in order to build a new uh, uh, tents there and to continue their life next to area A and uh, B. Uh, and it caused uh, uh, not only economical damage, it caused also a social damage for these communities because a community which they used to live for uh, years in this area, uh, they have a way of life in uh, the mountains with their goats, with their animals, and suddenly they found themselves next to, to one village. Uh, the people sometimes refuse them because of their animals that they will damage my uh, uh, plants. For example, the agricultural land. Uh, sometimes they, the, the people they don't like. Uh, their kids, they have to start a new life. For example, in Ain Samia, they were uh, a school uh, for different communities. They used to come there, they know each other. And suddenly the kids this year, they uh, pushed them to the village. And in the village, uh, schools more, uh, that uh, pushed many of the kids to leave the school also and not to go to the school, to refuse to go to the schools. Uh, so these uh, families, they start a new life after uh, 50 or 30 or 40 years living in the same uh, place. And it's not easy, uh, especially they are not going to other city, for example, and they have a normal life. No, they live from livelihood and there they cannot uh, look for, uh, for the livelihood anymore. Mm. Uh, so uh, this is the situation for these uh, families. And uh, we note now also that families or communities which they didn't leave yet, but they start, for example, in the South Seaborn Hills. In the, the last uh, week, I heard about families and we will uh, pick a testimony from them that uh, one guy, he had 80 heads of goats. He sell 40 in order to cover the loans which he took in order to feed the 80. And now he uh, seriously planned to leave all the sector and to go just to Yatta and to start to work as a worker uh, and to leave this uh, uh, type of life. And it's not easy for the people to rebuild their uh, professionality and to, to start a new life. Uh, so that's the situation in these communities when they're being displaced to other uh, areas. 
And uh, Karim, you mentioned, you know, uh, kids being unable or unwilling to attend new schools and all these kind of ripple effects from this uh, situation of displacement. Sarit, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think it's important to remember that when a community is displaced from land it lived on, be it land that the people own or land that they lived on through agreements with various landowners it's not as if there's like tons of open space in the west bank that people could just go to like karim described areas near uh, area a and b uh, that's probably about 40 percent of the west bank are pretty densely populated and either fully constructed or all cultivated so people whose general uh, livelihood uh, depends on raising livestock would it just not have any space. And, and that's what a lot of people will complain about. But then there's other issues. I think access to schooling is really a shocking impact now on the lives of these uh, specifically Bedouin communities that have been displaced in recent months and in the past year or so from the Eastern Ramallah region, because there was actually a very uh, impressive system of schools that were constructed by the communities, but with international support, right? With the uh, support from donor countries. And those schools were constructed specifically in areas uh, where communities were facing forcible transfer. Uh, and that is because for the obvious reason that when children are educated, a community is much more resilient. And that's why these schools were constructed. And that is also why the Israeli government and its various uh, um, tools like, you know, the civil administration on the one hand and settlers and their lobbies like Regavim, the movement Regavim on the, the other hand, were targeting these schools because they don't want these Palestinian children to have an education, to be become literate and to possibly also go and get, you know, go to university and get, uh, <coughs> uh, you know, a decent future um, and they don't want these communities to be re resilient and to be able to stick to their uh, their locations so they they targeted those schools very intensely and you can really see I mean it's quite a symbolic situation because with the N Samia school like Karim described the community was displaced before the school was demolished but the school was under a demolition order by the Israeli authorities for the entire duration that the community was you know kind of like uh, threatened so intensely with violence that it ultimately had to leave. So then the community left, the school stayed empty and slowly being vandalized by settlers. And then eventually the civil administration, the Israeli branch uh, of the government came um, and demolished the school and took away all the rubble. And now the area is just empty. This is such a symbolic uh, way to kind of like demonstrate the two kind of like uh, inter you know interconnected ways that Israel pushes away these communities. And then one final point on the issue of education is once the communities have been dispersed and any and families have kind of like gone around to different places, the first uh, to be harmed by this are girls who find it harder to go or where families that are quite traditional would find it difficult to send uh, girls to far off new schools, especially considering there's very little uh, like public transport or any kind of school busing system. So the girls are always paying the price and are going to get less of an opportunity to, to get an education. And not even, to mention, even, you know, just movement throughout the West Bank from one day to the next is never guaranteed. So even if you're able to circumvent all those obstacles, who knows if you can even travel the roads those days. Karim, but yes, also please. there is another obstacle for the girls, especially in these schools, because the schools in these communities, they are 
very very small mm. first of all and the number of the students there is very small mm-hmm. when they go to the villages uh, with the different culture and uh, a huge amount of students in, the, uh, in, in these schools they found themselves as a, a, a strangers mm. and that's what pushed them to leave the school and not to go to the school anymore even small kids they they cannot uh, rebuild the relations with the school in this uh, village it became difficult for them wow and i think it's you know especially maybe one additional thing when we're thinking about a future where with climate change impacting our region herding is going to become far less profitable i'm not even talking about the occupation and israeli apartheid that have you know devastating the palestinian herding sector but these children will need to get jobs well paying jobs and they need an education and the fact that they're, they're losing their education because of this displacement it just adds insult to injury Yeah, absolutely. And and just in my own personal experience, what I have seen is many of the youth who do live in area A, which as you've noted is incredibly crowded, dense, more people living in apartment buildings now than homes with gardens, is that many of them see the economic solution is to go to Israel and work construction in Israel. So there's this just multiple layers of of dispossession and economic incentives and disincentives. It's very complicated. Um you know i i can't help but think that what you're describing is just this kind of cruelty and oppression that we've seen and and you've reported leads to people dismantling their own homes and uprooting their own communities um you know because of fear because of lack of access to infrastructure and all these other uh, things you've talked about even though we understand that for living conditions for quality of life these conditions are impossible does international law consider the uprooting of these communities to be forced or voluntary and is that even a meaningful difference so from the international law perspective what what do we know and what does it say about forcible transfer in these kinds of conditions yani yeah, according to the international law it's not conditionally that uh, they should bring bulldozers and trucks and force the people to jump into the trucks uh, and took them from place to other place according to the uh, international law if you create uh, conditions uh, not uh, uh, humanitarian conditions for life for a community and that push the community to leave that means a, a forced displacement when you go to these communities and from uh, take all the aspects of the life of these uh, communities they are first of all they are under the care of the donations of the uh, uh, authorities every day and every night every morning uh, another thing they are uh, not connected to the water also although that we in many cases you can see that the pipes of the uh, water running under these communities in order to supply to the settlements the uh, the water and i told you that in these communities they uh, get the water for more than 35 shekels for each cubic meter uh, so that's another thing the roads they don't have uh, normal roads to reach uh, the communities and in many cases the state confiscate uh, uh, vehicles uh, driving in these areas blaming them that they are in a uh, uh, national zone or blaming them that are in uh, firing zone on different uh, things in uh, many uh, uh, cases they are preventing them from uh, raising in some areas 
and they uh, considered it as a uh, natural reserves or um, military closed zones for these uh, people. Uh, electricity, they are not allowed to be connected to the electricity also. And uh, plus all these things, we have the settler balance, which is uh, not direct way by the state, but it's uh, supported by the state. And then the people will leave. And if not uh, uh, forced displacement, what we can call that. And again, again, according to international law, if you create unliving conditions for someone and he leave, that means that it's forced displacement. And that's what happened in the ground. Maybe the, uh, the state, they don't want to come with the bulldozers mm. and to demolish tens of communities. Mm. And uh, because it will make some kind of uh, reaction in the international community. Right. Then they use these ways. They use these practices. And the settlers balance, it's one of the new tools in the, uh, in the books of the tools of the state in order to push the, the people uh, leaving their areas. And that's the first forced suppressment itself. Absolutely. And that, I think that's a really important point that in the eyes of international law, there is no difference. Um, and this is would be considered forced transfer by any definition under international law. Um, Sari, you know, we could have an entire other conversation about how the current Israeli government is uh, working with this, but I can't help but notice that so many of these trends that, yes, they've existed for decades, but we're really seeing this acceleration and even... Um, you know, uh, encouragement by some members of the current Israeli government. And, you know, of course, you know, the Israeli government and and, and some of its ministers and what they've been saying has been in the news lately. Um, so can you tell us, even though this phenomenon predates the current Israeli government, I mean, Palestinians, of course, have been being displaced since 1948 by similar means. What is different under this government, and especially for these more vulnerable shepherding communities in Area C? So I would say um, it's a um, quantum leap, right? This violence is turbocharged by the knowledge of these herders. These Some of them are quite young, actually, settlers, in some cases, youth who are on the ground in these herding uh, outposts. Their knowledge that nothing is going to come to them. There's no, uh, there's no, they're not going to pay any price for this. And this is because, you know, the... Um, the, the government currently, uh, even though obviously, as you said, they haven't started this, it lends, it lends full legitimacy to settler violence. And the uh, government ministers publicly encourage uh, and support perpetrators. Members of the government themselves have been held and suspected uh, uh, of violence uh, in the past. They're now the people who are responsible for of designing policy. They allocate funding that perpetuates and funds and finances this violence. They're meant to enforce the law on violent settlers who attack Palestinians, which obviously he's not done. Now, maybe the other issue, aside from the scope and the, the um, severity, uh, is that this government doesn't even bother with these empty condemnations that we've seen, that we've heard uh, in the past after some acts of violence. They just praise them. Um, we're Previous governments did insist to pretend to kind of like maintain a certain uh, charade of a, a functioning law enforcement system and investigations and prosecutions, etc. Uh, I would see. I would say that today, um, 
many government ministers, uh, prime, you know, are, are working to delete, to erase any kind of trace of a, a reasonable uh, system of um, of accountability. Uh, now, I think the best example, and maybe we'll just settle for one example. When a minister, uh, Minister Smotrich, uh, calls publicly to erase the village uh, of Hawara, um, so he says the government has to do it. And this is the guy who actually has the tools, has the capacity, has the authority to go ahead and erase Palestinian villages. You know, that's a very clear message that settlers are getting on the ground loud and clear. Yeah, no, it's it's not abstract, right? It's they they say it, it happens, and then uh, it there's no recourse, and so of course, what do we expect? It's it's going to continue. Plus, funding that was very very generous even in the past for all of these actions um, is now you know there's a flood of money uh, directed at all of this uh, work, and certainly people, you know, everyone knows uh, you know the the kind of like the right, everyone sees the writing on the wall as it were. Soldiers, military uh, uh, leadership, and and uh, and um, politicians, anyone on the ground, it's very clear uh, what the commanders want. I mean, the civilian commanders and the military commanders, and people, you know, just go ahead and implement it. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, can you tell us as we as we kind of wrap up this important conversation? You know how many more communities are facing this threat? You've noted that some communities have already been completely displaced and have left empty villages. You know, when you spoke of that, I couldn't help but think of, you know, the old city in Hebron, for example, as a, as a big example. Um, and now we're seeing this through Area C. So how many more communities are left that are facing these threats? Um, can you tell us a little bit about where they are? And just so our audience, you know, we can end on a bit of a, maybe a hopeful note. Can, is there anything that can be done to intervene and to support these communities, especially considering the current uh, makeup of the Israeli government? Uh, and when we observe the situation in the, all the West Bank, in all the area C, we, we, we see tens of communities which are living in the same conditions as these communities which they just left. Uh, the question here, when they will give up, when they will be uh, 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 broken and uh, take the decision to leave uh, the areas, uh, creating the unliving conditions, creating uh, such as uh, difficulties for these uh, communities, the uh, subtle attacks, which has become uh, a phenomenon, daily phenomenon uh, everywhere. And uh, even in the places which they resent uh, uh, shepherd uh, uh, farms for the settlers, they create a new ones. Almost every week we have a new uh, uh, settler farms next to uh, Palestinian communities. And the mm -hmm. goal of these farms is to control more land and to push the Palestinians out of this areas. So if we don't uh, 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 find some kind of uh, uh, support from the international community, from some kind of pressure over the Israeli government in order to stop all these uh, actions against the Palestinians in the area, see, I think that, or we think that after uh, uh, just a few years, not many years, uh, you will uh, find the uh, area C clean from uh, the Palestinians at all, and they will uh, be under cont full control of uh, Jewish settlers. 
and that's the main goal of the, the state, that's the main goal of the settlers, that's the main goal of the politicians uh, like Smotrovich and Bingvir, and they want to make it very fast, and that's why they support all these uh, farms, because these farms, they are, uh, as I told, the new tool in the uh, tools box of the government. Uh, mm. They're doing that, and they're doing that in, uh, all over the West Bank. And almost we have, for example, in our, uh, uh, in my department, the field research department, Petselem, in the West Bank, eight uh, field researchers. And we have about 200 uh, video volunteers. Uh, all of them, we are not uh, being able to, 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 uh, to control all these uh, attacks because mm. it's in daily base everywhere and you can't distribute yourself everywhere. All, you have volunteers, you have uh, staff members, you have uh, uh, different activists in the, in the ground and all these people, they cannot control and document all these attacks over the uh, Palestinians. So yeah. we think that uh, if there will be uh, no uh, intervention from the international community, from if there is no pressure from the international community, these policies will be continue. And the lack of the accountability, it will push uh, the government and the individuals to do more violations against, against the Palestinians. And we have to know that the Palestinians, they are uh, civilians, they are uh, uh, they're supposed to be protected under the international law by the occupying uh, power, but the occupying power, they violate their rights all the time and they, they support the attacks against them, they support the violations against them and uh, already they, they are violated their, their rights. So I think, mm. we think that uh, they need, we need some kind of international action in order to prevent and to stop all these uh, displacement and uh, it's uh, the international community doesn't have to wait until the bulldozers will come and will uh, and the trucks will come and they will push the people inside these trucks and uh, push them another area no creating these conditions by the state by the settlers supported by the state for the palestinians it's forced displacement and this is war crime and the, the international community is supposed to deal with that as a work, ongoing war, war crime in the ground mm. these days. Okay. And the, okay. the international community, they cannot say that we are, didn't uh, know that, or we didn't hear about that. No, the, uh, it's very clear that it's going on in this moment, in these days, it's going on. Mm. I just want to add something, uh, sorry, really quickly. I, don't, I think we don't have a lot of time. Um, there's two things I think that need to be uh, clear uh, as a result uh, of this conversation. The first is that there are lots of uh, initiatives on the ground where both Israeli activists uh, and in some cases, Palestinian activists are also accompanying shepherds, uh, forming protective presence in different places throughout uh, and resisting uh, this, these attacks by settlers um, like individually and on a daily basis. But the issue is systemic. And for as long as there is no systemic uh, accountability and consequences for the Israeli policymakers who make decisions that enable this reality, it's going to continue. So this, I think, would be, these would be the two essential messages. Uh, forcible transfer is happening. It's part of Israel's apartheid regime, and we need to see serious 
consequences for its perpetrators. Thank you. Yeah. And and this is just a note, you know, that there is, you know, people often talk about the status quo and disrupting the status quo. And this is a reminder that there is no status quo. The situation on the ground changes daily, deteriorates for Palestinians on a daily basis. You know, as you say, in five, 10 years, will there be any Palestinian communities left in Area C without significant international intervention that to date we have not seen the political or, or uh appetite for, to say the least. Um, and I think also this gives us, you know, I, as we approach the 30th anniversary of the Oslo Accords, which created these areas A, B, and C to begin with, this gives us another opportunity to kind of think critically about that legacy and, and what it means three decades later. Um, before we wrap up, do, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share? I mean, I think for me, really, if our audience, which I assume is more of a U.S. policy-based audience, would go ahead and translate this conversation to policy asks within your own constituencies, this would be my main message uh, going ahead. Uh, and this has to happen uh, in parallel with resistance uh, against uh, many other actions that the Israeli government is perpetrating, so, uh, you know, and, and many other uh, harms to Palestinian human rights that this, the Israeli apartheid regime is inflicting uh, on Palestinians? Uh, just I want to say that uh, uh, maybe Israel violates the right of the Palestinians these days. Israel doing the forced displacement for the Palestinians. But I think that the silence of the international community, it makes the international community as partners of Israel in these actions against the Palestinians. So, uh, yani, we carry the, the, uh, the responsibility for these violations as the international community. We have to act as, uh, in order to protect the international law, to protect the legitimacy of the international law in this world. We mm. cannot uh, respect the international law in some place and uh, uh, throw the international law other places. Absolutely. We have to look to the, everybody in the same eye and that's what we cannot see in our region. We can see that there is two, there is a double standard looking to the area here. So we need to be looked as a victims and to deal with the situation as it's supposed to be. That's, a, I think, a very important note to end on. And uh, I want to really thank you both, Karim and Sarit, for this. A very sobering, but I think really important conversation. Um, you know, we, we all know that when there's physical violence, when there's bombings, when there's raids, these make the news. But these kinds of um, incidents, it's much it's it's much more insidious. It's just kind of happens. And I think it's so important to to call attention to this. And I encourage the audience to see Beth Salem's work on this and, and many other issues. Um, and we'll have those links in the chat and also via follow up email. Um, so I want to thank you both. And I also want to thank everyone who joined us live today or will listen to this event later on via podcast or YouTube. Um, we're glad to share this conversation with you. Um, we will share any, any follow-up questions with the panelists. And please check back at the FMEP website, which is at www.fmep.com. Org for a list of resources relating to this conversation we just had and for announcements of other upcoming events, webinars, podcasts on similar and other issues related to uh, justice um, for Palestinians. So thank you all. And until next time. Thank you very thank you. much.
Thank you, Yara. Thank you, Sarah.